Take your Bibles and turn with me again to the book of Jonah. We are continuing in our series. We're looking today at verses 4 through 10 of chapter 1. Probably every driver remembers sometimes when you almost had an accident. And uh, if you hadn't looked up when you did, if you hadn't looked away from your phone when you did, or whatever it might have been, there might, might have been a, a terrible catastrophe. I think part of the, of the horror of those moments is not only what could possibly happen to us, but what we could have possibly done to somebody else. The book of Jonah turns out so well that um, we could easily miss the lesson, just like we sometimes tend to forget those near misses on the road. Jonah almost got himself killed by resisting God's will. And we see today he almost destroyed the lives of everybody else on the ship he was on when God uh, arrested him, you could say. Let's review a little bit by reading the first three verses of Jonah 1. We uh, looked at these last week as part of our introduction. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So God's telling his prophet what he should do. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. I think as the uh, early readers of this first had the book of Jonah, there was supposed to be some kind of a shock value to realizing that God told a prophet what to do, and he refused to do it. I think it should hit us the same way. How could it be that, that, that God would tell someone something, and then they wouldn't do it? Jonah goes the opposite direction, trying to flee from the Lord. And so let's take a look a little bit at our uh, geography again, just to get a, a picture of, of where this is. So Jonah, we found out, is from a little town of Gath-Hefer in Israel. God tells him to go to Nineveh, some, some 500 miles north uh, east of there. Instead, he goes the opposite direction, down to Joppa, maybe 50 miles, and then heads for Tarshish, some 2,500 miles in the wrong direction, all across the Mediterranean Sea. He's going to end up on the southwest uh, side of what we call Spain, really in the Atlantic Ocean. That's how desperate he was to get away from doing what God wanted. Why would that be? Jonah despised the Ninevites. Ninevites are Assyrians. Nineveh, Nineveh is the capital city of what was then the Assyrian Empire. They were cruel people who had previously uh, attacked Israel. So they were, they were not on a friendly basis. And Jonah, we saw last week from chapter 4, anticipated that if he went to warn them spiritually, if God wanted him to warn them spiritually, they would probably repent and God would be gracious. And he didn't even want them to be Redeemed. Repentant. So, 
we see a conflict between Jonah and God on the issue of his grace. God's grace is the theme, I think, of this book, really. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the theme of why we're here today. And it's the theme of what God is doing. We are saved from our sin. God only saves sinners. That's all there is. And, and so it's a reason we, we send missionaries to other places. Right now we have John and Rebecca Keefe in, in Paraguay. They are serving there to reach now a second group of Ayade Indians to, to teach them the gospel of grace. Right now Rhett and Stacy Staus are <clears throat> joining a team to be a part of a ministry in a, a tribal area in Papua New Guinea. And they're going to learn their language, write their language, to be able to translate the Bible into their language so they can hear what we can find in any one of several Bibles probably on our shelves. But God's grace is so important. It's a huge deal for God in his universe. And so when someone refuses to be a part of that, Jonah, he will do what's necessary to get him back in the process of communicating his grace. Specifically, what God does here is he throws a storm. (laughs) Verse 4, then the Lord sent, the word sent is actually to throw or to hurl. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. So we see the character of God's grace in, in the, the overall passage and the purpose of sending Jonah. Last week we saw the, the character trait or attribute of God, his omnipresence. That is, God is omni, everywhere, present. That's why it was fruitless for, for Jonah to think he could flee from the Lord. It's almost uh, ironic or, or, or a touch of humor to think that you can get away from a God who's everywhere. And now we see not just his omnipresence, but his omnipotence, because that means all power. And God is able to snap his fingers, and a storm arises near this ship. Poor sailors are terrified. Wooden ships are uh, strong until something stronger hits them. Made of wood, uh, they're breakable. You can imagine during this storm the creaking, the groaning of the frame and the deck, and with just the right force, you could could have a a ship essentially uh, explode into splinters. And so they're on the the edge of the end of their life. They, they, They didn't have the internet for their forecast, but typically sailors would, would, would have some anticipation. And if you can picture them along the southern shore of the Mediterranean, maybe if they knew a big, sh- big uh, storm was coming, they would, they would maybe go down to land in anticipation. But there was nothing they could do about this one. God in his omnipotence threw, hurled a storm. It's a, it's a term like throwing a rock or... For some reason, I thought this week of uh, an old sports story where uh, Indiana coach Bobby Knight hurled a chair across the floor during a game. (laughs) 1985, I looked it up. 
<clears throat> God threw a perfect storm at Jonah. And suddenly, now the focus is on the sailors, suddenly the sailors are spiritual. You know, you get, you get spiritual in a hurry when, when you're at the, uh, in the threat of your life. They could have been cursing and, and telling coarse jokes moments before, but suddenly, as in a foxhole, they are desperate. And they cried out, each to his own God. Interestingly, the, the world was essentially polytheistic, many gods at this time, and yet it seems that uh, uh, people chose like their favorite and so each one's calling out to whatever it is they believed in. So there's this spiritual side of things. But do you notice there's also this practical side at the end of verse 5. They threw the cargo into the sea. Now that, that, was, that was giving up the purpose of their trip. That was giving up any hope they had of, of financial benefit from being on this trip. Because uh, we, we, we actually saw this last week. King Solomon would send to Tarshish to get gold, silver, and precious stones. And so perhaps they were going to get that kind of a thing. So whatever their, their uh, economy was, were they bringing grain, were they bringing something to trade for what they wanted, they threw it all overboard just hoping that, that maybe they would uh, be able to survive more likely. Where's Jonah? Fascinating, he's in the, the bottom or hold or cargo area of the ship. Uh, this, this is not likely a passenger ship, right? There's cargo. Uh, this isn't a cruise ship, though, like the Titanic, it was threatening to go down. He's asleep. And you have to wonder, is this a natural or supernatural sleep? He, was it that he was depressed in his disobedience and just oversleeping and in his deep sleep just escape mode? Or was God supernaturally putting this deep sleep upon him so he would be the last to know, all, the, all the, the sailors would figure it out first, he'd be the last to know when the captain came and said, wake up, what are you thinking? We're desperate here, call on your God, pray. It's ironic almost that uh, the, sold, the, the sailors have more spiritual sensitivity here than God's prophet does. Uh, Jonah, Jonah imagined somehow that he was beyond God's power. These pagan sailors have now realized there is a God who, who must have power because this, this, this storm had a supernatural element to it. Principle is that unbelievers <clears throat> are often aware of God and their need for him. Um, we sometimes assume that because people don't talk about spiritual things that they are not interested in spiritual things. But um, God becomes real when you really need God. And it creates often a, a time of spiritual opportunity. And, and what we see is, and it's, this is really part of the whole uh, grace theme, is that, that God is getting the attention of unbelievers. He's always doing that. But for God to get the attention of unbelievers, he first of all has to get the attention of believers to tell the unbelievers. And that's what he's doing, trying to get the attention of his own prophet. Another important principle or really warning. <clears throat> God saved us to serve him. And so if we don't serve him, he takes that very seriously. He saved us. To serve. I think as, as, as believers, many times we can become very casual about uh, service. 
uh, does it suit to serve? Essentially, that's, a, that's an attitude of ingratitude. Because if we understood the grace of God, we would appreciate the grace of God and respond to the grace of God. And to not respond to the grace of God is ingratitude. It's kind of a classic uh, spoiled rich kid uh, syndrome. You have all these, all these benefits. And easily we take them uh, for granted. And so if we find ourselves getting... Uh, spoiled or lazy spiritually, are we, are we thinking of the cost of the cross? important passage that we often share about God's grace is uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is so important, and we, we celebrate and praise God that, that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. No strings attached. There is no, there is no asterisk attached that says, uh, if you do good works, if you add good works, if you promise to do good works, there's not, there is no asterisk, asterisk, but there is a plan that God had in mind. And the plan is in the very next verse that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Often as I'm uh, sharing the gospel with somebody and trying to stress that it is by faith alone, not by good works, sometimes it just comes blurting out and someone says, so what's the point of good works? Just keep reading. So that we, while we are not saved by good works at all, it's a gift, we are yet saved for Good works. It's entirely by grace, but grace has its purpose in God's plan. And this is what Jonah seems to have forgotten. He was a part of the privileged nation of Israel in a covenant of love with God. And beyond that, he had then been called, specifically spoken to, as a prophet of God. God had already used him as a prophet. Second Kings 14, we looked at last week, God used him to speak to King Jeroboam. And Jonah was willing to go to King Jeroboam. That was good news about his own people, Israel. But then when God asked him to go to those evil foreigners, he goes the other direction. When our Creator and our Savior asks us to serve Him, we don't get to pick the job that we want. We take the job He assigns and he's so good at doing so. He knows exactly how he's gifted us. He knows exactly the opportunities, the people we know. He, it's different for everyone. We are his workmanship. His, we're his creation. It's like he has, he has made this, manufactured this. This privileged status we have as his people, we didn't earn it any more than, 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 than a baby earns their way into to life. It's, a, it's given we're his workmanship, chosen, loved, forgiven. He's given us birth. And we're saved to serve. Some ten years ago now, I think it was, that uh, our son Scott and I did a, uh, one of our motorcycle trips for a few days. And we went across Wisconsin and over to uh, Minnesota and then came down the Mississippi and into Iowa. And then we... Um, I uh, went to the National Motorcycle Museum in Anamosa, Iowa. And uh, this week as I was reading it, 
my mind was jogged to a particular motorcycle that we saw in the museum. And uh, so I, I went back through my photos and found it. I actually took a picture of it. It's a, it's a 1980 uh, Kawasaki uh, KZ650. Why is it in the museum? Can you read the fine print? Let me zoom into the little uh, placard down below. Never ridden. And this is what I remembered is, yeah, look, it is like, it is showroom condition because it was taken right from the showroom and the odometer says zero miles. Never ridden. And, and I kind of had, I remember the contradictory feelings I had looking at this bike. I mean, cool, perfect, showroom condition. Did I mention we were on a motorcycle trip? <laughs> I think this was taken the morning of that picture, other picture. So, so motorcycle, motorcycles are made to be ridden. They're made to be enjoyed. And so in a sense, it was a tragedy to see a, a perfectly good motorcycle. Never ridden. I think this is what Jonah failed to realize, that he was the workmanship of God created to serve. And that's why God went after him. He was not supposed to sit in Gath Heifer the rest of his life nice and shiny. <laughs> Rather, he meant to serve. Service is a sometimes hard thing to define. We should always start with the question, why would I serve? And the why goes back to the grace of God. Verse 10 follows verse 8 and 9. Because we are saved by grace, motivated by grace, that I would serve. How we would serve? It, it, it changes through seasons of life, perhaps. But, but there, there are particular ways that God puts his call upon us. And, and I think we should ask ourselves, who am I serving? It's, it's not all a, about a church position. There's many ways to serve uh, at the church, of course. But, but it's, who am I serving? Um, who should I serve next? What is, what is, maybe it's 2019, there's a, there's a fresh sense of, this is, this is what I think God has for me uh, now. Just that we'd be receptive to what God is teaching us about service. So, God sent a storm to arrest Jonah, but he was not the only one affected. And so we return to uh, thinking of these terrified sailors, verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Actually, you can only imagine the, 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 the confusion and chaos on the deck of that ship. And they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? When the lot falls on Jonah, they just pepper him with these, these questions. Verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. They, they sensed this contradiction, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So there was like a longer discussion, but we're told the, the main points. Suddenly they realize 
It's Jonah's fault. So while the captain was imploring Jonah to pray down below, the sailors are casting lot above. Casting lots was a, a, a practice that's found among Jews and non-Jews, uh, kind of like a, a drawing straws or rolling the dice. There were times in, in, in the Old Testament where God was using the casting of lots and they had those two stones, the Urim and Thummim, probably black and white stones to discern God's will. Samuel uh, used it at times. So it wasn't a, 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 an evil thing necessarily, but I have to wonder, did, did God ever use, uh, guide the, the lots cast by, by pagans before? I don't know. But he definitely did here. And so somehow, whatever stones or, or divining instruments they used, God twisted and turned them so that it pointed right to Jonah. It's your fault. If Jonah had any doubt when the captain came down to him and woke him up, whether it was his fault, there was now no doubt. Because God had also, in his omnipotence, guided the, the lot to be falling on him. Think through Jonah's day. We don't know what time of day. We don't know how long they had sailed. Uh, it's Some estimate it might be a month's journey to go from Joppa across the Mediterranean into uh, the Aegean Sea and out to what we call Spain. So how many days did they, they get down uh, the, the path of uh, uh, sailing? I, we don't know. Maybe the day started out normal, sunshine, crisp breeze, all looks good. And then the sky starts to turn dark. And there's a bank of clouds and there's that wind that whips up ahead of a storm. And they realize they have no escape. A desperate blast against them and now desperate measures trying to save themselves. Imagine getting to the place of jettisoning everything that you brought along. Would they ever get back to their families? Uh, when I was in the Philippines, I had to uh, happened to meet two different men who uh, have made their career uh, on ships. Uh, the one man uh, would spend basically 10 months away. And uh, he'd been across the ocean and, and to America, and it takes a long time to get around, and then he'd maybe have a month or two with his family, then out he would go again. These men didn't know if they'd ever get back to their families. And their families, were their families even here, ever? Would shipwrecks at sea ever be found? What did these men to deserve, do to deserve such a, a terror? Nothing. It was Jonah's fault. And so the terrified men confront him. You, you should really read verse 8 and 9, you know, yelling in your yelling voice, your, your outside voice, right? Because uh, it, it's a storm. And they... They throw these questions, demanding answers, screaming, whose fault is this? What are you, who are you? And then they hear that he's running from his God. And whatever their polytheistic minds imagined that might mean, um, suddenly Jonah's God just rose to the very top. And in fact, Jonah's answers indicates that there is no list of gods. I worship the God of heaven. That means like everything, the God of everything. And not only is he the, the ruler and authority over everything, he is the one who made the land and the sea. Right then, everything was about land and sea. They desperately would have liked to be sitting on land. Instead, they're at the sea. 
that can take their lives. My God made the sea. My God caused this storm. I caused my God (laughs) to cause the storm. And they were suffering. It's another sobering principle. When God disciplines believers, it often hurts others connected. Many times I think we rationalize the way we avoid the will of God with a sense of, hey, it's it's me, it's my life, my decision. If I get hurt, I get hurt. You know, it's on me. Eh, Not really. Because we are all connected uh, to someone. And so God's discipline that touches us can touch others as well. Israel is an example. If you read through most of the prophets, God is generally exhorting them to repent or I'm going to bring the discipline. Generally, uh, in times of wicked kings, leaders are usually the issue. But I was thinking, you know, there had to be godly people when God punished Israel. In fact, I'm reading in Jeremiah now, and, and Jeremiah, this godly prophet who had basically no response to his ministry, no positive response, lots of negative response. A godly man, he suffered along with the rest of the nation. Churches. You think of the uh, messages, prophetic messages to the seven churches in, in Revelation there, basically that God's going to send his discipline, and we assume he did because uh, we lose track of whatever happened to those churches. And so we maybe all know uh, too many stories of churches, in a sense, experiencing God's discipline. Uh, division, scandal, power struggles, Leadership sin. And everybody suffers. Israel, churches, families. Is it any different for families? No, in fact, it's especially true of families. You can, you can leave a church, but your family's always your family. Recently I've uh, taught through First and Second Samuel and uh, two stark examples of God's discipline come to mind. King Saul, King David. Very different men, very different stories of God's discipline. I believe them both to uh, have been believers uh, spiritually. King Saul, uh, initially in his ministry, the Holy Spirit came upon him. He prophesied and in the power of the Spirit had early victories when he was living in obedience. But eventually, this issues of, of, of fear and, and jealousy and what people think and all these things spiraled to the place of disobedience. So low he went that we find him at the end of his life actually consulting the occult, going to the, the medium there at Endor. It just sobering reminder of how far down a believer can go when, uh, when we follow our flesh. Did Saul's sin affect his family? Oh, yeah. The other, one of the saddest parts of the, the books of Samuel is to follow the life of Jonathan, Saul's son. What an amazing, godly man Jonathan was. Didn't even have the faults of his friend David what were, the res- what were the consequences of Saul's sin in Jonathan's life? Jonathan would never be king, though he would have otherwise been. And in fact, God allowed Jonathan to be killed in the same battle with his uh, rebellious dad. 
Second example, King David. Very different uh, and, and better ending. But David, of course, uh, sinned with Bathsheba and, and uh, uh, calling for the, the murder of Uriah. And God's discipline would reverberate through his family. God said through the prophet Nathan that the sword would never depart from his house and that while what he did was done privately, his wives would be violated publicly and it, it all happened. And David's wicked son Amnon rapes his daughter, David's daughter Tamar. And uh, then Absalom, another son, murders Amnon. Uh, Absalom sleeps with his dad's mistresses and wives when he chases dad out of town uh, the discipline of God affecting everybody else. We, you know, we love to read God's word about his grace, and it's always present, even in times of discipline. But the, but the reality is that what we do or don't do is not just our own business, spiritually. Does that mean there's no hope or grace if we see consequences in our lives or even our children. I know this is a, this is a, a difficult subject, but the reality is we are all experiencing discipline of some type all the time. This is the, this is the messiness of life, but are we a David or, or are we a Saul? Because the story of, of David is one of incredible uh, restoration and, and long-term impact. And even... Even his sin and its consequences have served such a redemptive value through the centuries for us. God wastes nothing. And Jonah is is coming to that place in his life where he is just about, just beginning a process of repentance. In fact, when he says, when he answers and comes out with it, says, I am a Hebrew, I worship God, he's taking responsibility. And I think that's the, the beginning of a, of a beautiful story of restoration, but it is a long and messy process of restoration. We like to think that repentance is like, boom, we are new people. And actually there are stories like that to a degree, but life is messy. And so there is a process. And uh, when he comes out with it, I mean, he's, he's, we'll see next week, he's essentially uh, suicidal about it. It's me, I did it. He's ready to forget it all. My life is over. That was not, never God's plan. God's, God's grace will, will triumph. The people, soldiers are terrified. I mean, sailors are terrified. And they're demanding answers. What have you done? But they have realized something. And the sailors are through the discipline of Jonah. God is revealing himself in a gracious way to the sailors. If Jonah had never run, the sailors would never have experienced the true God of Israel. God wastes nothing. And so it's part of the plan of God that they would be so terrified because now they realize the omnipotence of God. They realize that, that their gods are, are useless, and they, they experienced it actually through the discipline of, of God's man, Jonah. Because God is in this amazing process of showing his grace, and showing his grace, and showing his grace. And probably the best thing that ever happened to Jonah 
was what seemed to be the worst thing that ever happened to Jonah in this incredible storm and the threat they all felt to their lives. But God was just beginning his process of restoration and redemption because God so loved the world. God so loved the world. He so loved the people of Nineveh. God so loves the people of Bozaki County. God so loves the people in you, in the lives of you and me, that he will use whatever circumstances so that we become willing servants of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded of your sovereignty today, that in your great plan of redemption, you used a series of events, those who obey and those who have sinned. You, you used all kinds of things to bring the gospel perhaps to us. And we see the way you continue to do that throughout history. And uh, so we just trust you with your sovereign care over our lives and, and wherever we find ourselves today to know that you are speaking both grace and truth. And uh, so I pray that we would uh, submit ourselves to you, that we would not uh, resist your will, but we would embrace it with where you find us right now and find you faithful in your restoration and your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.